we are going to pick up, and we're, we began to just kind of transition a little bit last week, and the idea of, of understanding this, first and foremost, this identity crisis, and I think it's become a, a norm. What's funny is I was, I was at a church in Gretna yesterday, and I was talking to some of the people there and one of the pastors, and they were relaying the same exact message, some of the struggles that they've gone through and the struggles that they're having as a church and the pastor there specifically, and they're a much larger church, they're in a much larger town, I mean, it's just part of it, and it's interesting that the mindset is the same and the struggles are the same is that when you're a Bible-believing Christian, you don't fit in in this world. Just the truth. And no matter what you do, you're never going to. It was never intended that you would. I mean, Jesus made that abundantly clear. But yet we've allowed culture to manipulate us to the point where we should try to fit in and just get along because we want to reach people with the gospel. And I don't know if we realize how offensive the gospel is. And the concept of the gospel makes zero sense. I had a friend of mine. I grew up with this guy. And this was probably four years ago. He was just in a really bad way. He called me up. He said, can we get together and talk? And he just doesn't understand the ideas of Christianity. He believes in a higher power, which is ironic in itself, right? But he, this whole idea of Christianity, he said something to the effect of, he's like, so basically, if Adolf Hitler on his deathbed just looked up and says, Jesus, I'm sorry, then he's in. And I'm like, well, kind of. I mean, that's kind of a little... A little vague, but, but the concept is there. I said, the problem you have is you're conflating the love of God and the rules that God has laid out in a man-made system. In other words, the love that we have for one another always has strings attached no matter how badly we want it to not. The love of a mother can be taken away. It can go, you could do something to make your mother no longer want anything to do with you. It may take a lot. Some of it, it may take a lot less, but it's, it is possible. But here is the point, is that as he was looking at this, what he heard growing up is that if I'm good, then I'll be okay. As if his behavior was the determining factor for his outcome with God. And then he made a comment to me, and he said, here's the difference. Your life has been devoted to this, mine hasn't. You're a good person, I'm not. And I just looked him straight in the eye, and I said, what makes you think I'm a good person. And he began to list off things that I did, things I didn't even know he knew that I did. And I said, and who determined that those were good? He's like, well, I don't know. I said, so what is your standard of good? He's like, well, I don't know. I'm like, so if we took God and said God is good, and this is the standard, and if it's below that, then it's not good. How do you think I'm doing? And he looked at me and he says, Probably not very well. I'm like, welcome to the club, buddy. We're all in the same boat. But we've allowed culture to dictate our beliefs. We've allowed thought process to creep into our terminology used in the church. Do you realize that a true Bible born-again believer will use the same term as a Mormon as the same term as a Roman Catholic? And these three groups have completely differing opinions on this, and yet we use the same terminology. What we know, because we have conflating uh, uh, belief systems, is that we can't all be right. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right, because those truths contradict one another. You guys with me? I'm not getting too philosophical, am I? It's early, I get it. You see, the problem is, is we've stopped thinking. 
We have cashed in our brains. We have become baby birds. Our mouths are open. And anything with the Bible verse attached to it, we will take in and believe as gospel truth. And the beautiful thing is, this is nothing new. This isn't new. So let's go through this a little bit, all right? Because I want to recap because I'm going somewhere with all of this. First of all is the identity. We know what it is by now. It's the characteristic of a person. It's the characteristic of a group. It's the marker that sets them apart. Why were followers of Jesus after his death called followers of the way? And the term Christian gets adopted later as a derogative term. Christian was used to them the way we think Westboro Baptist today. Believers in a system, but we would not associate with that. You guys following me on that part? Okay. Why was that done? Because there was something unique about these followers that separated them from all the other followers. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees during the time of Christ. After the time of Christ too. Probably still today for all I know. The Pharisees were the legalists. They were the ones that would look at Scripture, and Scripture was their guide. And then you had the Sadducees, who did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death and stuff like that. Resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in any of that kind of stuff. And you can find that in Scripture. We're not going there today. But what they had in common was the God that they served. Now, who was right, who was wrong? That's a perfect example of where, because they have contradictory beliefs... They can't both be right, but the God they served was correct, but the belief system was wrong. And because of their wrong belief system, it caused them to act out in a way that was contrary to the plan of God. You guys see that? Because the Pharisees are the ones that crucified Jesus. The Sadducees are the ones that gave the apostles so much a hard time. And both of them were trying to thwart the plan of God, even though they had righteous indignation that they were on the track to follow the plan of God. Isn't that interesting? We have that same thing going on today. And we've got warnings for this. So number one, we've got to begin to ask this question. What should a born-again believer look like? What should they sound like? How should they carry themselves in society? How does their born-again Christian beliefs affect every phase of their life? It should have an impact. What you believe has an impact in the way that you behave, in the way that you talk, in the way that you carry yourself out amongst the people. Alright, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So there is something unique about a born-again believer. Not somebody who calls themselves a Christian. Do you realize by calling yourself one does not make you one? I don't know if you knew that or not. Because if that's all it takes, then I'm skinny. You have to accept it. And really, the way we are today, you probably have to accept it anyway. You see, the things that we know about Jesus, what he said, what he did, come from one source, and one source only. That is from Scripture. What is Scripture? It is the documentation of the events that took place in Jesus' life. And this is important to understand, because Scripture is on attack today. We don't like it, so what do we do? We change the meanings of words. We begin to move things around, and we take things out of context, and we go and find verses that will fit what we're looking for. Whatever will make us happy, whatever works for us in the moment, that's what we look for. And so because of that, we've got all these altering beliefs and all of these dis, uh, discontent people out there. They're just doing their thing and say, no, Jesus loves you just the way you are. And that is true. Jesus did love you just the way you were, which is why he made a way for you to get out of that. This is not a new problem. 
as we read last week, and we're going to read a few of these again. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. At his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, Paul, warning Timothy, pastor of Ephesus, be prepared. You're going to convince, you're going to rebuke, you're going to exhort, and you're going to do it with long-suffering, and you're going to teach them, folk, because the time's coming when this is what's going to happen. And we see that today. So, if Paul's warning Timothy, is this any new problem that's going on? Of course not. There is nothing new, it's just we regurgitate them. So, Paul's warning him, you watch out. These people are going to be drawn aside by what they want. We see that every day. You see that in the church. You see that with born-again believers who love God. They are drawn away by what they want. They will excuse away what they want to fit their narrative, to do whatever it is that makes them happy. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, it says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn. Avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Same thing going on. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scripture. So you, therefore, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with error of the wicked." But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Again, so now we got Peter talking about. Same thing, right? People are drawn away because of the desires that they have. We will gravitate to people who will embrace the way that we are. We just want acceptance. And we just want to do our lives. And we don't want to be questioned. And we don't want to be called out. And today, if you call somebody out on their nonsense, what is it? You hate me. But Jesus spent his entire ministry calling people out for the stupid things they were saying, they were doing, and that they believed. That's all he did. But we want to be just like him, except for that part. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrine of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Galatians 1, verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ, and even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you uh, than what, what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ." You guys picking up on this? I mean, it is just over and over. The day is coming when people will be deceived by what they ultimately want. They will heap up for themselves people that will tell them what they want to hear. And then they will feel good about it. And they will go to hell in the process. But they felt good all along the way. 
Paul and I were joking this morning about chili cheese Fritos. And my response was, listen, you only live once. If a man dies eating chili cheese Fritos, what a way to go. I mean, if you could pick it, there's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful, right? And obviously I'm joking, but that is literally the mindset that we have. It's okay. I can do whatever I want. Look at one more. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech and I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifest among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to God, of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself as the truth of Christ is in me. No one shall stop me from the boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I, do I not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Are such... For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So Paul, separating himself from the other guys, by doing what? He went to a place, he ministered free of charge. That means he did not take up offerings. He wasn't up there pleading for money. The need was there. But the other churches backed him to get him to where he needed to be. be. And the reason he's saying that is because obviously people were coming in and saying, I am sent from Jesus, and they're taking up money. They're taking up collections. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We see that today. We see it on TV. We see it in churches. Years ago, I made a decision that if we're ever going to have a service devoted to praying for healing, we will not take an offering up that night. Because no matter how hard you preach it, someone's going to drop something in that box thinking, if I do this, God will give me what I need. So we just avoid it. Because that's not how that works. And the reason I've done that is because I get so sick and tired of people just thinking, if I can just manipulate God. Or preachers who manipulate people's emotions... And say, you know, if you can't give me a $1,000 seed, how can you believe God for anything? Listen, if that seed's good, it's good in any fruit you want to put it on, go put it in a different field. Why's it got to be yours? I don't want to get off on that tangent. I'll be here all day. You see, the problem we have is we don't understand Scripture. And culture today has been on attack against Scripture because it is what is standing in the way to give them the freedom to do what they want. And if we continue to hold to that then we, too, are a problem. In fact, if you go all the way back in time, this is the very thing that has made problems for societies everywhere, to do what they want. That is why Diocletian tried to destroy it all, wipe it out. These guys are doing their own thing, and I don't like it because they're convicting us, so to speak. And the reason 
we have to stand our ground is because we have a job to do. We don't want to be one of these descriptors that we just read. Somebody who's pulled away or drawn away or, or just let go of the simplicity of God. And in our culture today, we're beginning to see this come to the forefront more than probably any other time, at least that I'm aware of. At least in my lifetime, which is not very long. I want to read you this quote by Richard Dawkins. Some of you guys know who he is. This is him. Good looking guy, right? He's kind of the head of the, what's called the new atheist. They've been raising up guys to come in after him, but he's been running his game for a while. If you saw the movie Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, Ben Stein put that out. He was at the forefront of this. Um, it was a beautifully well done documentary. I encourage you to get a chance to watch it, to watch it. But anyway, this is the quote from his book called The God Delusion. It says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. He's a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, I don't even know what all these words mean, pestilential, megalomaniacal, maniacal, excuse me, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent, malevolent bully. I can't even talk today. This is what he is out there in his book called The God Delusion. It's an interesting read if you get the chance. Don't be fooled by it, but read it. It is interesting. And this belief is carried out through our society. Now that's interesting. Because if you ask Christians today what they believe, they will begin to tell you, well, you've got the God of the Old Testament, which was law, and the God of the New Testament, Jesus, which is love, and grace, and mercy. Is that true? Do we see a character swing in that? Well, here's another quote. I didn't put the name on this because this comes from a man who I believe is a born-again believer that might be a little bit misguided. And so I don't want to completely throw him under the bus, but this is interesting. It says, at the risk of sounding critical, it remains a sad reality that the Bible Society chose to combine the Old and New Testaments into one single book. This single decision has caused widespread confusion within the ranks of believers throughout the world. Many of the writings in the Bible before the cross portray God to be a harsh, cruel being set on destroying and punishing people if they dared to disobey the set of moral standards represented by the Ten Commandments and the other laws. Now leave that up there for just a moment. Is that a true statement? Is what Richard Dawkins said a true statement? If you just have an elementary understanding of the Old Testament, you may believe that. Because what do we see time and time again? God said something. God sends judgment. God tells the Israelites... Go kill every man, woman, and child. And if you don't know anything about it, and you just read that, this would be kind of true. Now there's one thing that should jump out at you. Is the Bible Society isn't the ones that put that thing together. There is no Bible Society. Okay? That's not how that happened. But we're not going to go there today. You see, these are belief systems that are held not only by secular unbelievers, but by believing Christians in the church, or some offshoot of this, some distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And we, be, we begin to say, we're like, well, yeah, okay, God sent judgment, but, you know, Jesus came, and Jesus is love, and he came to set us free from what? This harsh father who was looking to drop the hammer. You guys heard some of this stuff? I'm sure I'm not alone. 
I deal with this all the time. Now, you may not realize this, but this is not the first time that this belief system has arisen. I want to introduce you guys to a guy named Marcion. Now, he was labeled a heretic back during his time. He lived from 85 A.D. to 160 A.D. Okay? He created something called Marcionism, and it was a sect of Gnosticism. And so, basically, is in his belief, he believed that God was of the Old Testament. The Creator God was one God, and the New Testament had another God whose son was Jesus. I know this sounds weird, but just bear with me for a little bit. And so, he taught, this is obviously heretical, but he called the God of the Old Testament, law and prophets, a worker of evils, delighting in wars, inconsistent in judgment, and he was self-contradictory. And that Jesus came from the Father who was above the God that made the world, and that Christ destroyed the prophets and the law and all the works of that God who made the world. So he had a two-God theology. He had an evil creator God, a benevolent supreme God, who sent Jesus gives people knowledge to escape the Creator God. Okay? So he's making a distinction that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was called the Demiurge, and this was the God of law. And the New Testament God was the God of love. And the God of love came to set us free from the control of the Old Testament God. He would begin to argue that the New Testament God, the Father of Jesus, was the all-knowing one. The Old Testament God wasn't. Do you know why? In Genesis chapter 3, he says, Adam, where are you? He's not all-knowing. He would have known where he was. He also believed that Paul was the only legitimate apostle and would only accept his writings. And you always, and the reason for this is he always saw Paul talking about law versus grace. Now look at the time frame that we're in here. That means that this belief system of Paul's writing at least being inspired was accepted at this stage, before 160 A.D. The council where the Bible came together was in the 300s. Okay? The problem that he had with Paul is Paul would constantly quote the Old Testament, which creates an issue. And Paul also clearly believed in a monotheistic God, one God. And so what he believed is that Paul had his writings and other apostles or people had edited Paul's writings. And because they'd edited it, it made Paul believe this. And so anyway, he gets excommunicated for uh, an immoral behavior. He goes to Rome. He starts a Gnostic school there. He had a canon of Scripture with basically ten of Paul's epistles. And then he had Luke's writings, but extremely edited. Now, I know that's a lot, and you're thinking, boy, this is good. I really cared to know about Marcionism. Well, the reason I'm telling you this is because this isn't anything new. Number one, he made the claim that Paul's epistles had been edited. Now, how would he know that? How could you prove that? You have to have something to compare it to. Paul's dead by the time he's born. So he couldn't go ask Paul. That means that he would have to have the original manuscript in order to compare it to. See, see, you guys have edited this, which he did not have, which means what? He pulled that out of thin air. He had a belief. He twisted the scriptures to fit his belief. You guys see that? I know we don't often think about that, but this is literally what we do. And sometimes it doesn't have the grave consequences that others do, but this is what we do. 
And so he did that, and he didn't like it. So like, oh, they must have edited. Let me fix it. In other words, I'm the one with all knowledge. And poor Luke got confused. I'll just white out the parts that I don't want people to see. It's almost like it's a government document, right? Well, just redact it. So this belief system, when he died... He had his followers, they were going around, it began to trickle out. There's all sorts of Gnosticism that was going on. A lot of what Paul is addressing are bad theologies that are out there. And remember what we talked about last week, why would anybody do this? Control, money, power. They're looking for something. They're looking for Jesus to confirm their teaching, and if they can just get him to do that, then all is well. But this belief system has popped up again in our own lifetime. You may not realize it, maybe you do. It's not exactly like this, but it's an offshoot of it. Here's the first guy, Rob Bell. He wrote a book called God Wins. Or Love Wins, excuse me, not God Wins, Love Wins. You guys remember that? Came out about 10 plus years ago. He was a pastor up in Michigan. And essentially, here's how it worked. Jesus came to die on the cross for sinners. All are sinners. Since Jesus paid the price, all are going to heaven. Is that true? Not according to Scripture. But that's what he began to teach. He was thrust to the forefront of society. He was thrust to the forefront of basically a lot of churches and stuff. He wrote a popular book. Oprah had him on. It's almost without, almost every time, that if you're a popular Christian author of any kind, if you're on the Oprah show, you're probably wrong, okay? But here's the thing. He has just gone through the roof, speaking engagements, all of this kind of stuff. With this theology, why is that? Because his theology says, I can do whatever I want. There's no consequences for my actions because love wins. You be who you are. Believe what you believe. It doesn't make any difference because love wins. He's twisted that. There's another one that's come out in recent times. Some of you guys are familiar with this. This is Ryan Zahn. He's in St. Joseph, Missouri. He wrote a book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. You see, Ryan Zahn was once a very well-known, charismatic pastor. Had all the big-name charismatic guys in. I mean, I went to his meetings all the time. I mean, it was really, really good stuff. And then he had a philosophical shift. He began to question the veracity of the Old Testament, because the Old Testament God did not seem to line up with the New Testament Jesus. And there was a book that was written a long time ago that says, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he wrote this one, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And basically what they've done is they began to question whether the legitimacy of the Old Testament is even real. That this God of the Old Testament really isn't the God that we see in the New Testament, but he is just simply the way people thought about God. And that you can't trust the Old Testament as anything historical to speak of. It's more so just the way that they kind of thought God was. But when Jesus comes on the scene, we now see who God really is. We see that love, that mercy, and compassion. So what does that sound like? It sounds like Old Testament law and judgment, New Testament grace and mercy. Is that how Scripture is? Well, we have to begin to look at this. So the first place we'll go is to John chapter 1, verse 16. 
And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That seems to line up with what they just said, or what I just said, but what they believe, right? Moses brought the law, but Jesus brought grace and mercy. Seems as if there's a distinction, right? You guys see that? Well, let's go a little deeper, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Therefore, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has been given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel. Now, that's interesting, because this grace is just claimed by Paul here, was given through Jesus when? Before time began. But was revealed when Jesus showed up. That means that the grace was always there, but it's now been revealed. That's kind of a middle-of-the-road verse. You could go either way with that one. We have a problem. Is we have to begin looking at the Old Testament, the one that they claim that has no grace, no mercy, it's all law and judgment, and begin to see what it says. So in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22... And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Now let me ask you this. Does this sound like a malevolent, misogynistic, judgmental God looking to bring the hammer down? Not really. So maybe Moses was confused because this God doesn't sound like such a bad guy. Psalm chapter 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Does that sound like the Richard Dawkins description? It doesn't. But maybe this psalmist is confused. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. So what is the deal? Because these psalms don't sound like we're ducking and covering and hoping God doesn't find us. This sounds like a description of a merciful God who loves people and is being gracious upon them. Does it not? So then why is this belief so prevalent in the church today? It's prevalent because we've allowed it to be. It's prevalent because we hear something, it kind of makes sense, we don't question it, and we just go with it. We never ask questions. So, I'm going to start this, okay? I'm going to create a timeline. This is creation, okay? We're going to go about right there. This is the birth of Christ. Now, this is the timeline from the moment of creation to the birth of Jesus, which is approximately how much time? Roughly 4,000 years. Okay? Fair enough. We're going to use that because that's math that I can handle. 
Okay? If that timeline represented creation to the birth of Jesus, it's approximately 4,000 years. If you want to go home and actually calculate it yourself, go nuts. Okay? But in this timeline, we have the creation event, we've got the fall of man, we've got the call of Abraham, we've got the flood, we've got the Israelites in Egypt, the escape from Egypt, the going into the promised land, the setting up of the kings, all those hardships, all the way to Malachi, boom, here's an angel, Jesus is born. That's a lot of time, right? And the reason we're asking this is we've got to begin to look at this, is was the God of this time frame, because that is what it is referring to, a gracious merciful God or is it truly the idea of the Demiurge the Marcion and that the Rob Zons and that the Rob Bell or Brian Zahn and the Rob Bells I said that backwards are beginning to portray because they're undermining the authority and they're not the only ones there are a lot of them out there Andy Stanley recently told everybody they said we need to unhitch our belief system from the Old Testament that our beliefs don't come from a book that they come from an event and I don't disagree with that statement, because you're right. This is nothing more than the capturing of the event on paper, right? It's the, the event that matters, but this is where we learn about it. So he is undermining it whether he's intending to or not. And this idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament aren't one and the same. We need to begin to study this out. So let's start in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord, look at this clay in the potter's hand. So are you in my hand, O house of Israel? The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to build and to plant, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Now that's interesting because there's impending judgment coming, right? The malevolent, misogynistic, hammer-dropping God of the Old Testament. But here's the thing. He's forewarning them. And he says, if you'll repent, I will not bring the calamity upon you. Do you know what we call that? Grace and mercy. Right? I mean, that's essentially what Jesus did. Destruction is our due. Receiving of the free gift of salvation is the grace and mercy, the free gift of salvation that has pulled us from this. Right? It's the same thing, is it not? Okay, let's look at another one. Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you should go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now what is that talking about? Four hundred years of continued sin 
before God brings judgment and drives them out and gives the land to Israel. Did he just drop the hammer on these people? No. And if you study this out of what was going on in the land of the Amorites, it was not good. No bueno. God is being patient and merciful and compassionate. 400 years is a long time to wait. Think about how long 400 years is. This nation did not exist 400 years ago. That's a long time. Things were a lot different 400 years ago. That is a very long amount of time. And how many chapters expanses that 400 years until we get to the point where they're ready to go into the land? 10, 15? It's kind of condensed. Let's look at Jonah. This is a perfect example of this. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So, he's going to them. These people had become exceptionally wicked and evil. And what does God do? He raises a prophet to go and forewarn them that their sin has now up. He's giving him a last opportunity to repent. What was going on? Amongst a lot of things that were going on in that nation, one of the things that would happen is that anytime they captured enemy soldiers, they would kill them by slowly cutting off body parts, their noses, their ears, their eyes, their hands, and then they would just leave them impaled uh, on sharp object, and they would have them stuck in the ground, and they'd have them on full view for people coming up to the city on the walls and all of that. They would skin their victims alive. I mean, there was a lot of bad stuff. They were killing their own children, sacrificing them to gods, all of this kind of stuff. It was a bad deal. And so, I think we would all agree that God, if you're going to pick anybody to go ahead and wipe out just, yeah, that wouldn't make sense to me. And God could have. And what did he do? He's sending Jonah to go and warn them. Now, let's fast forward a bit. Chapter 3, verse 5. Jonah goes. We know how that part goes. He didn't want to go. Tried not to go. A fish got him there. All right? So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest to the least of them, then word came to them, I came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Now, what happened? Sackcloth and ashes was a time of repentance, a time of mourning. They were confronted with their sin and they have repented from their sins and now the king representing the nation is making a decree everybody turn from your evil ways we don't know if God's going to relent but we're going to turn anyway verse 10 then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it evil nation deserved to be wiped out God forewarns them, judgment is coming, and what was their response? They had two choices, repent or not repent. If they hadn't repented, what would happen? Judgment would come. But because they repented, what happened? God relented. That sounds awfully compassionate and merciful and gracious. Not the God that is described by Brian Zahn, the God described by Richard Dawkins. 
It's almost like the God of the Old Testament is the exact same God of the New Testament. Because he's forewarned people that destruction and judgment is coming. Turn from your evil ways. Receive your way out. And some do, and some don't. We're not going to read any examples of the ones that didn't repent. We don't need to. But you guys see this. You guys see what's happening here. You see, we've allowed society to flip this thing on its head because we don't do our own homework. Somebody somewhere was taught that God of the Old Testament just judgmental, vindictive, all of these things. My friend that I grew up with had the same belief. He did not grow up going to church week in and week out. The few times that he went, it was stuff he got in Sunday school. It was stuff that was brought on to him. He probably doesn't even know where to find Genesis in the Bible. He just knows that it is there. And yet, he has this belief in his head about this God of the Old Testament. Where did it come from, and why is nobody confronting it? So here we have the story of Jonah. And God did exactly what he was going to do. And I'm telling you, I've been in situations where I was disobedient to God. And yet, I still watched God move in the area that I was supposed to do something in. And I immediately cried out, God, I'm so sorry. I should have done that. I knew I needed to do it, and I didn't do it, and I immediately repent, because here I am facing this. It's like, thank you for your faithfulness. I repent my lack thereof. So, of course, what is Jonah going to say? He should be excited, right? Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. He went a different direction. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Now look at him. He's mad. The reason he didn't want to go is he knew they might repent. And if they repent, he just wanted them wiped out. Think about that. That's pretty harsh. But what does he say? I knew you were gracious and merciful. So either Jonah's belief system was wrong, or we literally see the character of the Old Testament God fully on display. Verse 4, Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat under in the shade till he might see what become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it was so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose and God prepared a vehement east wind, the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wished for death himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. The Lord said, you have had pity on the plant which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and much livestock? He's making a lesson for Jonah here. You're angry about the plant that you had nothing to do with. 
but these are people that I created. Should I not have pity on them? You see, there's a statement I'm going to make here, and I want you guys to get this. And this is part of the problem. This is where these heresies come up, and this idea has crept into the church, and this, the reason we believe these things is because we just don't study them out. Is that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Let me say that again. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In other words, we see the completion. We see the same character of God. The difference is, is let me ask you this. We said that this is 4,000 years, and we've got the story of Jonah and all those other things. That is a long expanse of time. And how much dedication do we have to it? 1,000 pages maybe? You know, whatever it is. I don't even know. Not, I mean, for 4,000 years of history, there's not a lot capturing it. And the New Testament, if we were to add on to this, and if this was to scale the birth of Christ to John's revelation that was given to him on Patmos, what would that look like up here? Can you see that? You see, the time frame, big spans of time, lots of beginning and ending. We see the start of the bad, the judgment brought, the repentance thereof. But the New Testament is condensed into less than 100 years. We're not seeing things. We saw a prophecy of judgment that the temple would be destroyed that we never saw fulfilled. No writer of the New Testament ever writes about it. I mean, there's a lot of things that are still in play. And if you had the ability to go back and look at things, it would look completely different. It's kind of like the Civil War. We go back and we condense the Civil War into a book or two. And we study about it, we hit the highlights, and we see that stuff. But imagine living in it. It'd be a little different. It would be like time just stopped. This just goes on and on and on. The time of Jesus' life and the apostles is so minuscule, comparatively speaking, that you don't see the character of God drawn out beginning to end. You don't have tons and tons of prophecy being drawn out in the New Testament beginning to end. You're seeing the fulfillment of the foundational belief system that comes from this time period. You guys see that? See, this is the part we often miss, is that when you expand on a story, you see more details. We have a very condensed version of what's going on there. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. 
And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the store. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, the stories written here were for the people written there. All of that was put down. Don't be like them. If this is fictional, if this was not true, then that verse we just read is a lie. You can't separate them. Old Testament and New Testament is really a misnomer. It's Old Covenant, New Covenant. But because we've allowed it to be separated, we don't go back and study. We just dismiss it. But that literally, this 4,000 year span is the foundation upon every belief system that we hold today. That scripture clearly teaches in the New Testament. You eliminate that, it's just somebody's opinion. That is the foundation and we've allowed that to be eroded away. Look at Romans 15 verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did he just say? That the scriptures were written for us to learn and through patience and comfort have hope. All of these things were written down for our benefit. We have a culture today trying to dismiss it. We had that happening back in the first century and in the second century. So there's nothing new. This is the same thing that's going on. The difference is here, we're allowing it to take place. We have eliminated the foundation. We have built our house upon sand. And that sand is our emotions, our feelings, and what we want. And we've got to get away from that. You could deep dive all day long into all of this stuff. It'd be all over the place. But the bottom line is this, is that the God of the Old Testament did not change. That is the same God. It is one God. He sent His Son to warn and to offer a way out. Just like He did throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. You guys see that? You see, this is one of the reasons the church is unrecognizable. Because our belief system are based off of feelings and not facts. And we've got to get back to being a bearer of truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank you that you have kept it for us and that all these things were written for our benefit. And we can grow in our understanding of who you are, your character, and all that you have, Lord. That you continue to lead us, to continue to guide us, that we continue to grow. That we will set aside our preconceived notions, Lord, and open our hearts to what you have to say and what you are telling us through your scriptures, Lord. That you be glorified in every aspect of our lives, Father. That we know who you are and what you've done and we thank you for that grace and mercy that you continue to pour out on us each and every day. Lord, that our lives would be exemplified in what you are and who you are and what you do and what you have given us, Lord. That that grace, mercy, and compassion will pour out from us onto those that we are around, those that we work with, those that we live with, Lord, those that we just do life with. I just thank you, Lord, that you are exceedingly, abundantly more than we could ever ask or thank, Lord, that you are doing great things in our lives and are glorified in that, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you soon.